I love you. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Um, just another thing on that before we read the Bible. Their nursery is bigger and farther away from the sanctuary over there. Verse 12. Verse 12. Now when he had heard, when Jesus heard that his cousin John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee... And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. And he went all throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, from beyond the Jordan. This is God's word. So Jesus is getting going, right? He's getting the deal started. Um, we, we took a two-week break from Matthew. Uh, Daryl shared on uh, Mormonism two weeks ago, and last week I, I shared again on the necessity of, of having house groups. And lo and behold, Andrew and Jar here today. They got a sick sick kiddo this morning. Um, but they're starting a new house group, I think, this week, if I rush them. Um, so if you're interested in, in joining a new house group, there's a starting um, this Wednesday or next Wednesday, um, and so we need to, to get into that. Anyway, um, that's happening. So we'll jump back into Matthew now in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and we can think of this section at least in, in three ways. We have the, the Messiah's uh, movement, right, going through Galilee, the Messiah's message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the Messiah's ministry, healing, casting out demons, doing the whole bit. So first the movement, verse Twelve, And I don't have all my scriptures in here this morning because I had to fight with that computer all day yesterday. But John fixed it. Thank you, John. So, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So we're going to deal with John's imprisonment in, in a little bit. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Metali, so that what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier might happen. The land of, of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. For, so for you church people who've been in church your whole lives, where does Isaiah go next? Get that wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father going into this. So again, what Matthew's doing, and we'll do all the way through this gospel, is take the Jewish readers back to uh, Isaiah's oracles about the servant of the Lord. So you read through Isaiah, 66 chapters. He's always talking about the servant of the Lord. Sometimes 
we can look back and say it's Jesus. Sometimes it looks like Israel, but there's this servant um, passage going all the way um, through it. But we just want to note here that even the movements of Jesus, like even where he's going and walking and living, are fulfillments of what Isaiah has said. Because Jesus shows up not to a random city in Israel, right? He didn't just throw a dart and, and pick one. He shows up to Galilee. And at this point in uh, world history, Galilee is a mixture of Jew and Gentiles. It's, it's an area of, of commerce, for mostly for fishermen, which we're going to see in a second. It's not just a Jewish city. It's a mix of Jews and Gentiles, cueing the reader in. So if you're a first century Jew, cueing you into Jesus' mission and Israel's mission to be a light to the nations. Right? Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham, Abraham, through you, through your seed, through your line, through your family, all the nations will be blessed. Right? Gentiles, you. Okay, this is good news, okay? Uh, And and Isaiah prophesied this later in, in Isaiah. Isaiah 49, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you, Israel, a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So we see it's beginning in in Jerusalem and in Galilee with Jesus, but the gospel doesn't stop there. The gospel's meant to go to the ends of the earth. The blessing of Abraham, the blessing of the resurrection, we'll look at next week on Easter, is for the whole world, Jew and Gentile. And so what I want the main thing I want you to see beginning in Matthew 4 is that God's commission to Abraham is, is still on track, okay? God hasn't uh, forgotten or changed or reimagined anything. The commission is still on track. The agent for blessing all the nations is still Abraham's family, embodied in this Jewish man walking along the sea in Galilee. It's really cool because for seven, you know, four hundred years they're in exile. It's like God's probably done with them, right? He's probably forgotten the plan. Has got to do a plan B type deal. And Matthew's saying, no, he's still doing the thing. And then he says, this light has dawned. Who's the light dawned on? People dwelling in darkness, right? You know, if you're in light, you don't need light. These are people dwelling in darkness. And so in Isaiah's context, when Isaiah spoke these things and prophesied, the people of Israel were living in serious darkness. So if you read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and, and uh, if a little bit of, of Judges, it's just bad, okay? We got kings turning away from the Lord, worshiping idols, uh, chasing after foreign women who don't worship their God. And it's just bad news. And Isaiah prophesies in the midst of that, on them a light has dawned. And if you're in Isaiah's day and you hear that, you're going, you're smoking something, Isaiah. There's no light. We don't deserve any kind of light. We deserve everything we're going to get. And yet, in the first century, here comes the light. Though the people of Israel have run off and played the harlot, the Lord still pursues them. Okay, so just a a window into the heart of God for his people as he's going to keep coming after them. He is still jealous, uh, Paul says, for his kinsmen according to the flesh. He's made promises to them. And if his promises to Israel are are faulty or failure, what what, what basis do you have for his promises to you? Zero. If he's unfaithful to Israel, he might be unfaithful to you. But if he's faithful to Israel, I have good news for you, Gentile. He's going to be faithful to you. So later, Isaiah 49, same uh, theme here. We get one of the most beautiful, I think, covenant passages in the whole Bible. But Zion has said, Israel, Jerusalem has said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And the Lord answers through Isaiah and says, can a woman forget her child? 
Can she not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they might forget, which I don't think they would, but surely they may forget. But the Lord says, but I will not forget you. See, I've engraved you on the palm of my hand. Your walls are ever like, I'm going to take care of you, Israel. I'm going to overcome your sinfulness and and your your harlotry and your idolatry. I'm going to overcome them, not because you're awesome, but because I made promises to the patriarchs. I'm going to do what I said I would do. So he hasn't forgotten Israel. He's on the scene again in the first century, calling them to himself, calling them to fulfill their vocation to bless all the nations. So just quickly, the gospel has always been to the Jew first, right? And then to the Gentiles and from Abraham. The gospel has always been to the Jew first for the Gentiles. Okay, Israel's vocation embodied here in Jesus, seen most clearly in Jesus, is to bless all the Gentiles of which we are beneficiaries today and will be forever. And we could do a lot there, but let's move on. So first, his movement to Galilee, prophecy fulfilled. Now we have the message of the Messiah, and it's a message you guys have heard before. Okay, Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we dealt with um, repentance and the kingdom and the at-handness of that kingdom earlier in in chapter 3, and we'll deal with it over and over and over again all the way through Matthew, so I won't do it again here. But let's just look at another angle of what Jesus is saying. Okay, Up to this point in the story, and I know we're long series, we're spreading this out, Jesus is living in Nazareth. He's making tables and and chairs with pops. He gets baptized in the wilderness. He goes out into the desert to, you know, fisticuffs with the devil and wins. But outside of that, he's mostly unknown, right? There's not this big movement yet of, oh, there's that Jesus of Nazareth who's healing people and casting out demons and teaching. There's not huge crowds yet. All the crowds are where? Or they're following who? His cousin John, right? John's got the big crowds and the movement. Jesus is mostly um, unknown, but that's about to change right here. And the reason that's about to change is because Herod Antipas has a John problem. Okay? He has a John problem. And what is his John problem? It's not John per se. Uh, scripture actually says that Herod's kind of in awe of John. He, he's, he, uh, another tra- he fears John. He's got respect for John. He doesn't even have a problem with John's God. Okay, so if Herod hears about this crazy Jewish guy out in the desert eating locusts and dressing funny and, and the whole deal, and he says he wants everyone to worship Yahweh, Herod would be like, great, Yahweh sounds great, we'll put him on our shelf of our other 14 gods, it's fine. Okay, no, It's not a big deal. Herod's problem with John is John's message. That's the deal. John keeps getting up in Herod's business. Okay, making it clear that Herod's sexual immorality, his sleeping with his half-brother's wife, is actually not good. And those who practice such things will, at the end of the age, they won't inherit eternal life, they will inherit a lake of fire in Gehenna, in hell. That's what John's message is. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Herod, it's not okay what you're doing with your brother's wife, man. Repent and turn. And it would have been easier for John to buddy up and link arms with this immoral politician, but instead he calls him to repent. says, Herod, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Turn. I don't want you to go to a lake of fire. I want you to inherit eternal life in the age to come and live forever. And the reason John is calling Herod to repent and calling everyone else to repent is because John loves Herod. 
He loves him and he knows that God loves Herod. And so he calls Herod to repent. He warns Herod, Herod, turn from your sins. The day of God is closer today than it was yesterday. And I'm telling you this because I love you and because God loves you. And this is our message too. We don't tell people to repent because we hate them. We tell people to repent because we love them. We don't want them to inherit a lake of fire. We want them to inherit eternal life. And so Herod puts him in prison. And we'll look at that in chapter 11. So with Herod in prison, Herod's John problem is solved, right? That, that constant dripping faucet, leaky, you know, noisy man who, who's constantly sniping at his conscience is quiet. The voice crying in the wilderness has been silenced, but not for long. He's got a cousin who's going to preach the same message and with a little more gusto. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and from that time on, Jesus began to preach, what? Repent. <laughs> and, you know, if you're Herod, you've just got the noise shut up, and then you turn around and you hear it again. <laughs> it's the same thing. I thought I shut you up. No, it's, it's still here. The message goes on. As soon as Herod shut John's mouth, Jesus opened his. And the message that Jesus preached is just the one he stole from John. And in the academic world, this is called plagiarism. Okay? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's, he's stealing a thing, but it's okay. Like plagiarism in the scripture is okay because John just stole it from Joel. And Joel just stole it from the messenger in Malachi, who stole it from the messenger in Zechariah, who stole it from Ezekiel, who stole it from Habakkuk, who stole it from Jeremiah, who stole it from Isaiah, who stole it from Jonah, who stole it from Joshua, who stole it from Moses, who stole it from Noah, who stole it from Enoch. Like, the message has been the same seven generations from Adam. God's messengers have been saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven, the day of the Lord is at hand, so you must turn so that you will inherit eternal Life, the message of the day of the Lord, the message of repentance in light of the coming kingdom of God is not new. It's embedded into the fabric of human history because human history is a story of man rebelling against God. And the wages of sin is death. And to turn people from death, you call them to repent. It's just how it's always worked. This is Enoch, okay? Because you guys, your class went through Genesis a year ago whatever, and you're reading all those genealogies, and it's just like, we are good Christians reading this. <laughs> I have to turn in for my, uh, for my seminary class, I have to turn in a, a thing that says that I read whatever was assigned, and it, it was a lot of genealogies in my first class, and I had to like turn it in, and I was like, 60%, because I didn't read all those names, Okay. <laughs> But Enoch, seven generations removed from Adam, right? From the rebellion of Genesis 3. Enoch said this, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds, uh, their ungodly deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Enoch's saying that, guys. That message isn't new with John the Baptist. It's not new with Jesus. It's not new with the apostles. That's Enoch. Like we got Adam and Eve rebelling against God. Great, 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 grandfather Enoch says repent. He's coming with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on the ungodly. John picks that up. Jesus picks that up. We pick that up. Guys, our message has not changed from Genesis 3. 
It hasn't changed. God is good. God loves you. God is going to rid the earth of wickedness and evil forever. Things won't be this way forever. And in His sovereignty, He has determined that anyone who will repent of their sin will be saved from the wrath of God when He comes in power. That's the message. And that's the message before Jesus. That's the message of Jesus. That's the message after Jesus. It's the same thing. Enoch's an evangelist, guys. (laughs) Just like John's an evangelist, repent for the king is coming. And he's coming not as a baby in a manger, not to give his life on a cross, but to judge the world in righteousness, to shatter kings, Psalm 2 we read. Shatter kings on his day of wrath. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Guys, that's fantastic news. He's coming to rid the world of evil. The problem is you're evil. So if he's good, he's got to rid the world of evil. You, but in his mercy, he has put forth his son as a propitiation, as a payment for our sins, so that on the day of his wrath, we are resurrected from the grave to inherit life forever. Amen. Let's stand. You know what I mean? Like, like, that's what Jesus is preaching. John shut Herod up, and Jesus goes, Okay, it's my turn. And then Jesus ascended, and the apostles said, Now it's my turn. And then the apostles died and the early church said, it's my turn. And now we are 2,000 years past and we say, all right, it's our turn. Call people to repentance in light of the day of the Lord. Point them to the mercy of God in the cross so that at that day they are raised from their graves to inherit eternal life. That's awesome. Yes, sir. Um, so now he, Jesus starts recruiting others to his cause, which is what... And we'll get into that. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. So just real quick, this doesn't mean they're stupid. Um, I've heard this taught before that these guys are fishermen because they couldn't hack it in school. And that's just not true. That's, I mean, they're not being mean when they say They just heard a preacher say it, who heard a preacher say it, who heard a preacher say it, and that's how... Bad teaching gets passed along. It's not vindictive. It's just how it is. Okay? They're fishermen because they want to make money. You know I mean? And if they're, uh, you know, commercial fishing in Galilee is good, is good business. And if it's a family business, it's just what you did, right? Your dad farmed, so you farm. It's just what you do. So please, just a quick moratorium on those stupid first century disciples. All right? Verse 19. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So here's the call. And, and unlike the other teachers and sages and even rabbis in that day who you had to go and ask, can I follow you? Jesus flips the script and says, hey, you follow me. Like he's, he's choosing his um, disciples. And how do they respond? Verse 20 says, immediately they left their nets, their boat, and their father, and they followed him. So the call goes forth, follow me. And these teenagers, okay, not mature Godly men, teenagers, leave everything. They leave money. They're leaving their fishing business. They're leaving comfort, right? Money and comfort, those things go together. That's why they're such a vice for us, because we like those things. And their family to walk with Jesus. And I am provoked by this. It is easy um, to talk about discipleship. And it's easy to talk about martyrdom, and it's easy and, and to watch it on a screen last night. Yeah, it's rough over there. 
and it's easy to talk about following the slain and risen Lord. And this is what we do. We talk about these things, and that's good. It's good to think and talk and sing and pray about these things, but Jesus didn't call the disciples to think about following them, following him. He called them to actually follow him, right? To actually do the thing. So what does that look like to follow Jesus? It means a lot of things. Okay, we won't go through all of them, but these guys were willing to lose their money and their comfort and their family. But the main thing that every disciple that Jesus calls to himself is called to give up is their lives. That's the point. We've talked about this before. If you will give Jesus the big yes, my life unto death, you've taken care of at that point a million little yeses. You know what I mean? Like, okay, Jesus, I'll give my life for you so I can also repent to my wife when I'm harsh with her. Because what's a bigger deal? Giving your life or, or doing this little repentance? Jesus, I'll give my life for you, which means I can also love my neighbor as... You know what I mean? Like, it's you get the big thing taken care of, a million other things are already done. They're already settled in your heart and mind, and if this one happens or not, you're good. You've settled it in your heart. So, th- But this is the main thing. The main call to follow Jesus is a call to martyrdom, to giving your life... For the sake of your master whom you're following. So according to church tradition and history, all of the apostles except for John were martyred. Tertullian, uh, 2nd century church father, said the blood of the Christians is the seed of the church. So every time a Christian is, is killed in persecution, their blood goes to the ground and ten more pop up. This is how it goes forward. In, in the Greek, the word martyr and witness come from the same word, martis, and it's just Witness, martyr, same person, same thing. Uh, Jesus commissions the disciples, Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses, right, in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And that makes it clear that Jesus is calling them not just witnesses, but as martyrs, because everything he said before Acts 1. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So cross means Death. I mean, it's a Roman torture device that Jesus is calling them to pick up. And we wear it around our neck and get attacked. You know what I mean? Like, you Christians are weirdos. It's strange. We light it up with whatever. We're missing a light bulb. We need to get that before Easter, actually. It's a call to death, okay? So Jesus hearers would have understood that the cross, pick up your cross and follow me, they know that's referring to Roman crucifixion. Therefore, Jesus called to take up the cross as a simple command. Look, if you're going to follow me, you embrace martyrdom. You embrace giving your life. And Jesus teaches this all the way through. Matthew 16, whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, what's lose your life mean, guys? It's not, it's not just giving up whatever temporary pleasures. Jesus' main point is dying. Giving your life for my sake will find it. He taught his disciples that the sufferings of the prophets, which included martyrdom, was an example to be followed. So the prophets, if you read all the way through, they were beaten and stoned. They were mistreated and killed. They'd been rejected and murdered. Why? Because of their witness. Jesus, when he speaks about his bloody cup and his bloody baptism of death, he then extends it to the disciples. Mark 10, the cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism that I am baptized with, you will be baptized with. He sent them out to preach, we watched last night, as sheep among wolves. Sheep among wolves. 
That's how he sends them out, warning them. Uh, Matthew 10, it's enough, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house a demon, how much more will they will malign those of his household? But Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body and... Uh, who cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can both destroy body and soul in hell. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It's not worthy of me. Like, that's hard language from Jesus. My point is this. Faithfulness unto death is the clear implication of what it means to follow Jesus. It means a billion other things. But if you get this one settled, okay, I can do the martyrdom thing. Every other little decision to follow Jesus just makes sense. And it's light, and it's momentary, and it makes you worthy of the name. Those who want to be like their teacher will lay down their life in this age. Okay, While those who seek to keep their life in this age will lose it at the day of the Lord. That's got to be clear, guys. John 12, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this age will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. When? The resurrection. The day of the Lord. And you, are ra- you lost your life in this age, which is what? Max. Beverly Cleary, if you guys read the Junie B. Jones book, she died at 104 this week. 104 versus 10 million, trillion, billion. You know what I mean? Lose your life in this age, guys. 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, whatever. It's worth it to inherit eternal life. This is the cost of being a disciple. Okay? This is it. And this is what Jesus is calling these fishermen to. He's calling them to follow him, to be faithful to him, even unto death. And and just to point out again, guys, this age is not shaped like a crown. This age is shaped like a cross. And you run this age, you follow Jesus, faithful unto death, set your face like flint to go to the cross like Jesus did. In the age to come, you inherit a crown. Those who suffer with him, Timothy says, will reign with him. So the first part of being a disciple is following the lamb wherever that lamb goes, even if that lamb goes to slaughter. That's the deal. The second part of being a disciple is calling others to do the same. Okay? Which is like not a super popular message, right? If you saw this in the, in the job descriptions of the paper. <laughs> Sent out as sheep among wolves. No pay, no money. All right, sign me up. You know what I mean? It's not like a wonderful job. Everyone come see how wonderful this is. Hey, we're going to follow Jesus unto death. That's the first part. The second part is follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Meaning just as I have come and called you to follow me, you go and call others to follow me. So simply, if you are a disciple, you will make disciples, right? Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. If you aren't making disciples, do the math. You know what I'm saying? This is what disciples do. They, they sign up for martyrdom, which again, we live in Tonkawa, Oklahoma. Very unlikely. They sign up for martyrdom and they sign up to make fishers of men. Tonkawa's population in 2010 was 3,216. 2010 was 11 years ago. Oh my God. <laughs> there are six churches in Tonkawa and you guys have an idea of what their membership is. 
And so I would suggest to you that we are not doing the man-fishing, discipling thing as we ought to, just based on math. 3,216, six churches, all of our attendance under 80. So if we're not doing it as we ought to, I would also suggest to you that we will. Okay? I believe that. I believe, because I believe this book... And because I am a son of God, and therefore am led by the Spirit of God, and because I've looked into the eyes of some of you, and I've heard your hearts, I believe this, that we are going to make disciples. That we are going to be fishers of men in a way that we have not been in, in quite some time. I believe we're going to meet with people one-on-one to talk about Jesus And we're going to call people to repentance and we're going to bring these people into our home groups as a net to catch them. And they're going to see in our homes how we love and care for and encourage and admonish one another. And they're going to see how the people, the members of this church live like they really believe that Jesus came once to bear sin on the cross and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And they're going to believe the gospel. I believe that. I believe that's how we work this thing out. And then when that happens, when they repent of their sins and believe the gospel, we get together on Sunday, we blow up our hot tub, (laughs) we dunk them in that water, we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, and send them out to go and make more disciples. And when we do that, we jump and scream and shout and sing because my son who was lost has come home, my son who is dead is, is alive. That's a wonderful thing to think about. And it's an even more wonderful thing to do. You know what I mean? Like we get to do what Andrew and Peter are doing here. We get to follow Jesus, faithful unto death, and become fishers of men. This is our call. Not just to sort of exist, but to go into all the world and make disciples. And I would just start with the people you know. So here's what I would call us to today is... One, rehearse the gospel. This is why singing is such a good thing. Okay, when we sing songs about the gospel. But just for myself personally, um, one of the the greatest boons in in, in sharing the gospel and and trying to make disciples has come from constantly rehearsing the gospel in my own mind. Okay, That, that... God made everything good. Man rebelled against God. God called Israel, sent Jesus as a propitiation for our sins. And we call people to repentance, to believe in that cross and in that resurrection in light of the, in light of the day of the Lord. And to run that through with people and, and in my mind over and over and over again. Okay, That way, when I share the gospel, it's just naturally coming out of me because I've been thinking about it. Not coming off a script. Those scripts are fine. Okay, I, I like uh, evangelism that's done in a way I don't like better than no evangelism at all. You know what I mean? Okay, so rehearse the gospel in your own mind, and then you can just share that thing. And it's not weird or what? I mean, it is weird. It's a guy raised from the dead and is coming back in the clouds. And you know. But you run that thing through. Okay. Rehearse it. Rehearse it. Rehearse it. Rehearse it in your own heart and own mind to keep your own sanity in this age. Okay. And then to share with people. Second, choose somebody. Okay? Um, Generally, we only drift into bad things, right? Nobody drifts into being out of shape. You just wake up one day like, oh, you do drift into that. That's a a bad thing. Okay? 
um, we, we never drift into good things. You don't, you don't just drift like, oh, you know, whatever, I got eight hours of sleep last night. That doesn't happen. Okay? So to make disciples and call people to follow Jesus means you actually choose someone and you engage them with the gospel, which means pray, ask the Lord. Lord, who can I... Whose ears are you opening right now? Who, who do I know? How can we do this? Get a name and then start. And, and here's how you start. You, you ask. Okay? It sound, and it sounds like this. <laughs> Would you have any interest in reading the Bible with me for a few weeks? Okay? That might sound scary and bonkers to you. Um, but that feels less threatening to the person maybe than, hey, you want to come join our weird singing group on Sunday? Where we say we're going to drink the body and the blood. Okay? Really, I, I, in Tonkawa, you can ask people this and they'll respond positively. Hey, can we just meet once a week and for eight weeks? And you read the Bible. And as you read the Bible, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, they do the work. And you just show up and are obedient. Fourth thing, then you meet to read the Bible. And then last thing, you want to bring them into your home. That's why I want us to have these groups, so that when we are discipling one-on-one, we can bring them into a a group of people who are going to love them and care for them, and they can see what believers look like. So to do that, just real um, practically today, um, we have all of this over here. Um, The first thing I have is, uh, this is just a track, easy one, it's called Two Ways to Live. It just lays out the gospel really easily. We have a bunch of those over there, so grab, grab those. Um, the second, this is called one-to-one Bible reading, okay? Which is what I just explained to you there. It's a step-by-step how to sit down and read the Bible uh, with a believer, with an unbeliever, with with whatever. Uh, and this has been not the book itself, but just using the model in here has been the most helpful thing for me in sharing the gospel. Sitting down with someone and reading the Bible with them, and just asking questions, and then you find out like, oh. We better repent in light of the day of the Lord and believe in the cross and the resurrection. You know what I mean? That's And then the other one um, is, is discipling. It's helping others follow Jesus. These are basically booklets. So you can read them and put these things into practice. Um, but that's, all, that's all I have today, guys, is I think we're going to do it. I think we're going to go into all of Tonkawa and to all of the world and call people to follow Jesus, that we're going to be fishers of Man, so I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, take the Lord's Supper together.